Uh, welcome to the Evan Roberts podcast. It is a we are all dealing with coronavirus. We are all locked in our houses and apartments edition of the Evan Roberts podcast. So we figure why not pump out more entertainment over the next few weeks and months. And one thing that we thought about doing was rewatching a WWE or WCW pay-per-view and then kind of giving you a instant reaction slash retrospective to said event and, and taking part in this little endeavor that we're doing is the official retrospectiver of the Evan Roberts podcast, Dennis Holden. Of course, you could follow him at DHAB show. Dennis, I appreciate you doing this along with me. This should be a lot of fun or really pathetic. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to it. This was, uh, listen, this is a pretty damn good pay-per-view. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Well, so here's how we did this. I said to Dennis, why don't you pick the first pay-per-view that we do, and then I'll pick the next one. So Dennis decided to go with SummerSlam 2002. I responded with Starcade 1998 because <laughs> I just wanted to make everyone suffer if you were watching along with us. But I ask you, why SummerSlam 2002 as the first pay-per-view to rewatch? How long have we been doing this for? Like three years, give or take? A couple of years, yeah. So every time we do it, I feel like this is the, the one that we always dance around. We've mentioned it a bunch of times. You were there. I, I was not there. Uh, this is one of the best uh, collections of talents, random matches, people it, it, you know, going against each other you don't really think of. Uh, the big main event, the crowd was into it. Uh, there's a lot to like about this. And when I think of the all-time best non-WrestleMania pay-per-views, this is probably top five for me. Now, I agree, but this was the thing I was kind of nervous about when I started rewatching this. I was there, like you mentioned. I was living in D.C. at the time, so I drove in one night. It was not even a stopover kind of trip. In the morning, left Washington, D.C., drove to Long Island. I was actually doing a radio show at the time for XM Satellite Radio, and so I did sort of a Fugazi radio show from the <laughs> parking lot of Nassau Coliseum as we were getting set for this event. Went to the event, and then when the event was over at you know eleven o'clock at night, got back in my car and drove all the way back to D.C. with my car breaking down as I was getting back to my apartment complex. Technically, I lived in Maryland, though I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland at the time, and I love the event. Like you said, I've mentioned it too many times, pound for pound, one of the best pay per views ever. But if I've rewatched it since the network started, I probably went through it quickly. Like I never sat there and actually rewatched the entire event. And I was sort of nervous because it was 18 years ago, 17 and a half years ago. Is it going to hold up? So as I sat down, Dennis, I got to be honest, there was a part of me nervous that my reputation with you and others, <laughs> it's going to be completely ruined if SummerSlam 02 doesn't hold up to the hype. But it, but it did. It sure as hell did. Oh, it did. Okay. I, I, it really did. I feel like that. You know, I try to make notes of the in between matches. Like, so this is the first time I can remember, Evan. You can correct me on this. This is the first time we've done like the full pay per view from start to finish. So I'm like, you know what? I wanted to make notes of the in betweens. I wanted to make notes of WWE New York. I wanted to give you paint the whole picture for what would happen during that night. And this was, I think a two hour, 40 minute pay-per-view, something like that. Uh, and it didn't drag. It just remind, I, I remember putting on the network and I'm like, please don't be over three hours. Please don't be over three hours. Please don't <laughs> be three hours. And it was barely over two and a half and it moved and it was pretty damn good. All right, let's let's start at the beginning. And this one I remembered. Like 
I didn't even need to look up. One of the things that jumped out at me about this event is I remembered the opening match specifically, and I remembered the main event specifically. We all know the main event was The Rock against Brock Lesnar. But the first match of the night was Rey Mysterio Jr. against Kurt Angle. And here's the thing. Mysterio had debuted on SmackDown maybe weeks prior to this. So there was still that mystery of how are they going to book Rey Jr., the former WCW cruiserweight was never really a star in WCW. I mean, let's face it. He was a cruiserweight there. They unmasked him. I remember he had one big match with Ric Flair on a Monday Nitro where he was unmasked. And you thought, wow, maybe he's going to win the world heavyweight title. Outside of that, I don't even know if I would call him a mid-carder. He was exciting, but he was a cruiserweight. So I was very curious how they were going to book him. And you know how I feel about Kurt Angle. At this point, Kurt Angle is at the absolute top of his game. The match wasn't that long. It was only about 10 and a half minutes, 11 minutes, which I, I remembered incorrectly. If you would have asked me before I rewatched it, how long was that match? I would have figured it was a 25-minute match. But rewatching it, they didn't need any more than that. They did so brilliant with the 10 and a half minutes that they had. You had a little bit of the cruiserweight feel to it with Kurt Angle kind of acting a little bit like a cruiserweight. And then towards the middle of the match, it had more of a, a wrestling match. And what I loved, is that Kurt Angle won, but you walked away thinking Ray Jr. is a star. And that's always the best kind of booking you could have, where you have one guy win, and that's great, and probably the right guy to win, but you walked away saying, oh, Ray Jr. is awesome. It was just a hell of a first match. He comes in from behind. He, you know, uh, the, the, the whole the music, the whole thing. This is a fast match. This is a flippy match. There's the fun spot where Ray is going to go through the ropes. The ref stops him, so he comes back around and jumps over the ropes, over the ref, and hits yes. Angle over yes. the top. Uh, the 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 finish with the uh, top rope Hurricane Rana into the ankle lock. This is a little more than nine minutes, nine minutes and twenty seconds. Uh, there is purpose. There is momentum. And the one thing I took away from watching this match, Ev, is, is like is. Angle happy with this spot. He's opening SummerSlam in 02 after he's won the belt a bunch of times. He's been a superstar. Is he going to take this as a demotion? But you can tell that Angle knew he was in there with a, a world-class wrestler. So this is nine minutes with, without any, any pacing. It is, this is a tremendous match. All right. The second match of the night, two Hall of Famers, or one will be a Hall of Famer someday. Your personal favorite, Chris Jericho against Ric Flair. You go first on this. What do you think of the match? Uh, I thought it was fine. Uh, this is a weird time for Ric Flair in between being the owner of uh, Raw and between being an evolution. So it's a weird middle ground. They made mention of this being Flair's first SummerSlam, which is important to make note of. But the only build for this feud was that the week before on Raw, Flair beat up Fozzie's uh, band equipment. <laughs> so that was yeah, the only. Exactly. Um, so, th and the other weird thing about the finish of the match is that Jericho has Flair in the figure four. Flair taps while grabbing the bottom rope, which apparently negates the tapping. Uh, and then Jericho himself taps with the figure four. It was fine. It was 10 minutes and 22 seconds. It's not reinventing the world, but you can tell that they soured on Jericho after he was king of the world uh, in the spring of 02. I mean, think about that. That, that. That's the crazy part about this, that we are months removed from Chris Jericho being the first ever undisputed champion. That's where we are. So Chris Jericho went from main eventing WrestleMania, top of the game, to being a filler match because that's really what it was. And look, you could say the same thing about Ric Flair. Ric Flair is less than a year into his re-entrance into the WWE, and he's in a filler match. 
So that that's the one thing that kind of jumped out at me is sort of surprising. But this also may surprise you. When I thought back to my night at Nassau Coliseum, I remember Flair fought Jericho. And I think I remember saying to myself, ah, that match sucked. Rewatching it, it was actually pretty good. I mean, the the whole Ric Flair is tapping while grabbing the bottom <laughs> rope thing actually was very appealing because it was different. You sure. know, I, I don't know if I had seen that. I'm not sure that it's supposed to negate the tap out, but I like it because Ric Flair is a face in this match, yet he still has his Flair heel-like tendencies, including how he won the match, which is low-blowing Chris Jericho into a figure four. The one thing, though, that sucks, and it's got to suck for you, is the fact that Chris Jericho, again, goes from main eventing WrestleMania, first undisputed champion, to not only being in a filler match, but tapping out to Ric Flair's figure four, which for a Hall of Famer, not a lot of guys tapped out to Ric Flair's figure four in the latter part of his career. It was a rarity. And here's Chris Jericho doing it at SummerSlam. And I want to go back and get a sense of like what happened with Flair after this match, because evolution is still a little bit of a ways away. But watching the whatever they're called, the... uh, ruthless aggression on wwe network they're talking about being flair being uh, rudderless until triple h saved him god forbid that uh he didn't rewrite history uh but it's just one of those moments where like if so if rick flair was rudderless during this time and jericho's just coming off main eventing wrestlemania what are they doing where are they going and for jericho didn't really go anywhere with flair at least it led to revolution uh to evolution here's here's the thing because i actually believe it or not really remember the Raws after this. So, for example, when they had a segment, and I forget when it happened in the show, but you were keeping track of it, where Stephanie and Eric Bischoff are watching the show together. There's a moment, I think it was after the IC title match, which was Raw versus SmackDown. And we'll get to that match in full, but I want to bring this up, that Stephanie kind of laughed at Eric Bischoff, basically implying something was going to happen in the next few weeks where she was going to get her revenge. We know what happened. And that's the fact that Brock Lesnar became exclusive exclusive to SmackDown and they had to create a world title. And what I remember is when they gave the belt to Triple H, Ric Flair was the one that confronted him. So Flair, in a weird way, was even though we got the win here, he sort of was rudderless because he was an authority figure as a face, then became an authority figure as a heel where him and Austin were feuding. But then Steve Austin left. And then Flair all of a sudden just becomes a wrestler with no authority, and he's a, a good guy. So even though we got the win, I actually do agree that at this point he is sort of rudderless because where is he going after this? And basically where he went is he confronted Triple H and then eventually joined Triple H. I think it was at the next pay-per-view. He cost Rob Van Dam the title match. And before Evolution really started, Flair kind of became the manager, per se, of Triple H. So – Again, I think it's more of a knock on Jericho that Flair was rudderless. I guess they figured, let's throw him a freaking victory, and it was at the expense of Chris Jericho. And I do have to correct something. Right? I did hear Michael Cole, or maybe it was Jim Ross, say that this was Flair's first SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. Technically, Dennis, he was at SummerSlam 1992. He and Mr. Perfect were involved in the ultimate Ultimate Warrior Macho Man match. So even though Flair wasn't wrestling, he did have some uh, shenanigans being pulled in the SummerSlam 1992 title match. Just want to—I want—I want the record to be straight. I appreciate. I'm making notes in my notes. <laughs> okay. Edge against Eddie Guerrero. What do you think of this match? 
I thought it was great. And, you know, they, I was trying to think of how much interaction I remember them having. And I really couldn't remember much. When you think of La Familia, unfortunately, that was after Eddie passed. Um, this was a little bit weird to watch because Edge was a good guy. I forgot about the, the Rob Zombie music. Uh, Eddie yeah. was in control for most of the match, targeting the arm and really doing a, a mat classic, if you will. Um, but this was a, a really solid match between two, two guys that could really, really go. Yeah, this was almost a sneak into the future kind of match because these two guys would be so valuable on SmackDown over the next couple of years. It's amazing to think how far he came from Starcade 98, which we'll get into in our next podcast, <laughs> to SummerSlam 2002, to eventually beating the next big thing, Brock Lesnar, and becoming champion. This was a very good match. It also felt like it had no build based on the video package they gave us. I think the build to this match, Dennis was Eddie Guerrero was, quote, jealous of how popular Edge is because the women think he's sexy. So it was a very, really, is, is, that's the bill that you have. Is that better or worse than a Japanese shampoo commercial? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but it was a good match. I mean, I don't need, uh, I think it was Michael Cole saying, no one is ever kicked out of the education. I've never seen that before. I haven't looked it up, bro. But I have a feeling somebody has kicked out of the <laughs> before. I can't argue with that. The the next match, and I got to tell you, I was really surprised by how good this match was because when this match popped up on my screen, I had sort of forgotten about it, and that was the Un-Americans defending the WWE Tag Team titles against the incredible tag team of Booker T and Goldust. I, I actually thought this was a really fun match. Uh, I, I didn't remember who won, but I sort of made a prediction that the heels were going to go over and they did test came out. He gave a big kick to Booker T Christian got the cover. Um, but it was a fun match. It was a fun little tag team match. I know the Americans were a really stupid, lame way to get heat, especially in 2002. And I never loved Booker T and Goldust as a team. I thought it degraded how good Booker T could be. Uh, and it never hurt him because, look, Booker's fighting for the title at the next WrestleMania. He has his King Booker gimmick. So Booker had a great run in the WWE. But I didn't love the fact that after the invasion ended, he's basically stuck doing a comedy act with Goldust. So with all that said, I didn't love the tag team. I didn't love the characters. But I actually thought the match was pretty good. I enjoyed the the double axe kick from Booker. And, you know, it's one of those things that I forgot about the Spinneroni. And at the time, in the moment, when he's doing the Spinneroni every week, it becomes a little, you know, blase. It becomes a little passe. But not expecting it uh, when there's no one else in the ring and he's powering up. And I'm like, yo, Spinner, I, I, I popped for it. I was very happy to see the Spinner Rooney. Um, Booker T and Goldust are as good as it gets. Lance Storm and Christian are pros, pros. So you get a nice solid tag team match that comes in at just under 10 minutes. Like you said, during this time, you, you had a feeling. Uh, that the the heels the the bad guys are going to go over there, uh, but for a random tag match, considering uh, two potentially uh, mix matched uh, pairings of of tag team partners, it was a nice solid little match. This was the next match was a Raw versus SmackDown match, which has no appeal in this moment because they just split the brands. I mean, the brand split happened, I think, in late March, early April. And then they basically made everybody free agents when Eric Bischoff took over Raw and Stephanie took over SmackDown. So when they built this up as an interpromotional battle, I mean, it meant absolutely nothing. And that was Rob Van Dam against Chris Benoit. And I texted you this, and we need to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Benoit is the Intercontinental Champion. He is on SmackDown. RVB's on Raw. That's why Stephanie and Bischoff are bickering. 
But Benoit comes out and the intercontinental title is blacked out or blurred. I don't even know how you describe it. Screened out where they kind of blur the view of the IC title. Why? Do you have any reason for that? I did a little quick Google search. Couldn't find anything. Couldn't see after RVD won the belt if they, you know, blurted out. Really didn't see anything there. They didn't blur out the name. I was wondering if they were, if that was it, but that wasn't it. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that for some reason, so my understanding of the WWE and their title belt is that, you know, there's a version that the person carries with them if they do promotions or, you know, whatever. They have a, a version of the belt with them, but they also have a, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, a, uh, a filing cabinet with all the different belts on the road with them. So if they leave, they lose the belt uh, or something happens, they have another belt for TV. The only thing I can think of is for some reason that he, he left uh gorilla left the backstage area with an old IC belt with the scratch logo with the WWF on it. That's the only thing I can think of. But, but okay. So here's my question of that. If we went and back, back and watched an old WWF pay-per-view nowadays, it isn't scratched out anymore. Like that was the case for a while, but now I don't even think they have to. So right. that's why even that point doesn't fully make sense to me. Like if you went back and watched WrestleMania seven, they're not scratching out the WWF logo. I mean, I'm sure they didn't go back and unedit everything. You know what I mean? Like I understand. Oh, so I, you think it was a mistake then? Yeah. Maybe they just made a mistake and they, they just didn't go back and re-edit it or unedit yeah. it. No, look, look I, I, honestly, it was a small thing, and I think the fact that it was Benoit always leads to the conspiracy of does it have something to do with it being Chris Benoit? I doubt that. I think your view on what it probably was is, is the most accurate. It was just annoying because Benoit's coming out with the IC title, and it's all scratched out, and I couldn't understand why. This was everything you'd expect from an RVD Chris Benoit match. It was really good. The only negative I have, is when Rob Van Dam tried to put his version of the crippler crossface on Benoit. It was the ugliest crippler you'll ever see. It was just <laughs> awful. But outside of that, real good match. RVD, it's the five-star frog splash for the clean victory. And RVD becomes your intercontinental champion, a title that in a few short months was actually going to go away. They merged the IC title and the world heavyweight title, I'd say about two or three months later when that Triple H Kane feud and then they brought it back a few months after that. So the IC title, one of the more famous belts in history, actually disappeared for a while. And RVD was one of their uh, last champions before it did. And I can't believe with all the different belts that they had, they had all the WWE belts and all the WCW belts at this point. That's the, that's the one they get rid of. I, I never really understood that. Um, I, I, like you said, I had the same uh, note about RVD's crossface. Uh, I thought it was a great match. I was never the biggest RVD guy. Uh, but watching it with the perspective that I have now, he's just great. He's just really, really incredible at what he does. Uh, towards the end, the counter where RVD counters the back body drop into a cross body slam, um, to set up the five star frog splash. Uh, a great match. And then right after, like you said, uh, Bischoff and Stephanie are in the back. The IC belt goes from SmackDown and, and Benoit to Raw and RVD. And Bischoff was very, very happy about that. Were they trying to present sexual tension between Stephanie and Bischoff? Was that what they were trying to get at? I, uh, I can't even. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I got that sense, man. I'm telling you, and I think they had a kiss a few months later on a SmackDown, where Bischoff was at a Halloween party on SmackDown, and Stephanie was, you know, showing a lot of cleavage that night. I do remember that, and 
Eric Bischoff went in for the kiss and they left it at that. Like it never went anywhere after that. So was that the one really? where is that the one where Cena was uh, Vanilla Ice? Yes, I think it was the same episode of SmackDown. If you want to check that out, but I I, I got to tell you, I loved when they added Eric Bischoff to Raw. I loved it. Obviously, it would have been better if he was a part of a WCW invasion. The biggest mistake was Stephanie McMahon. I mean, with all due respect to her, I know she's accomplished a lot. and She's a better actress today than she was back in 2002. But between buying ECW during the invasion and now daddy saying, all right, you're going to run SmackDown. It always just felt forced with her. Like it just it would have made more sense. And they eventually did do this, but it would have made more sense initially for Paul Heyman to be the general manager of SmackDown. So you kind of had that ECW, WCW thing. I really didn't like the fact that it was Bischoff versus Stephanie. I was not a fan of that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really do much for me either. Um, but yeah, it, it was weird to look back that Stephanie McMahon's been in her life for 25 years. It's just weird how many, how much, how many of these years stack up over the years. No, it's true. It's true. And she'd be, she, she's about to be involved in a lot of weird angles. I mean, she had a wrestling match with Eric Bischoff, I think a few years later. She had a, uh, a what was it, like a last man standing match against Vince McMahon? <laughs> I mean, so there was a lot of weird stuff going on. The Undertaker against Test. What'd you think of this match? Uh, I, so, uh, Christian and Lance Storm interfere, the Un-Americans, the whole thing. I think the only thing that really stood out to me is that Undertaker, uh, pinned him with the tombstone. And I think th- this, during this time, that wasn't his finish. He was really doing the, uh, the last ride or the choke slam. So I was a little, uh, surprised with the finish with the tombstone. Um, Tess did get a little bit of offense in. Uh, I'm also, whenever I watch the Undertaker now, like when, when we see him the last 10 or 15 years, you have an idea that the Undertaker wants to work with this person. But in 2002, I don't know if he quite had that same cachet. Um, I, I don't know if this needed to, needed to happen, but listen, at least it was only, what, seven minutes long? It, you know what it was? For years, they tried to get Test over. They, they really tried to make Test a star. And look, he wasn't awful. He just was nothing special. He was just a big guy who was an average wrestler. He was basically Kevin Nash with worse mic skills. That's the way I viewed him. And so I thought this was a match where they're, again, attempting to make Test relevant. He's fighting The Undertaker. And unlike the Angle-Mysterio match where Angle won, but Mysterio was a star, I think they were probably trying for that with this Undertaker-Test match. It didn't work. To me, this was the worst match of the night. I didn't care about it. Undertaker goes into the crowd to get an American flag. That kind of felt forced to... I don't know. The whole thing just felt like a waste of time. The good news is the Undertaker was about to go into a feud with Brock Lesnar. So the Undertaker was about to have some main event matches and he would have like another year run as the American badass. By the way, by the way, referring back to an older podcast, the Undertaker retrospective. Did you notice the music that the Undertaker came out to? Did you notice it? Which one? I I don't remember right now. Dead man walking. I doubt that was the song you came out to. I, I, it was probably Kid Rock, but they had to cut it out because they don't want to pay Kid Rock the money or something. No, I think I, uh, we gotta we gotta go back, but I think that it shows up from here. Limp Biscuit absolutely shows up. I'm pretty sure Kid Rock shows up as well. And uh, isn't Kid Rock a Hall of Famer? I'm, I'm sure they don't mind paying him. You keep it in the family. I don't. I don't I don't like the fact that the music 
is so confusing. Can, can you give me the music from the actual night of the show? You're recreating history, Dennis, when you give me some other Fugazi music. I don't like it. The uh, Not to skip ahead for our next podcast, but I think that affected uh, the WCW rewatches just a little bit more. Yes. Oh, don't it? That basically, I give you a little spoiler alert. When we do our Starcade '98 rewatch, I would guess half of the podcast is going to be me bitching about the music that's being used. I, I was so for a ma- lot of wrestlers, but I, we'll say that. Oh, all right, because there's one I'm just so mad. I'm still mad about it. Oh, Star. What was it called? Starcade. Starcade event. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh, we got two more matches, and, and these are really the two matches of the night. The two matches. I think most people remember about from SummerSlam 2002. Shawn Michaels, Triple H, a, quote, non-sanctioned fight. This is Shawn Michaels' long-awaited return after, of course, his last match was at WrestleMania 14 against Stone Cold Steve Austin. What'd you think? Uh, Listen, it's great. They they beat the crap out of each other. There's a super kick into a chair. There's multiple ladders. There's a table. There's uh, so much incredible stuff. I got to talk to you about the two things uh, that the three things that stand out to me the most. One, Sean wears his ring entrance over his jeans, so he's wearing his sparkly chaps over jeans, which just slays me for some reason. I don't know why the hell that happened. Two. At the end, after he gets murdered by Triple H with the sledgehammer, actually, that's number two. At the end, Triple H murders him with a sledgehammer, like, like, straight up hits him in the back of the head. Like, you can't even kayfabe that. That was awful. And then who comes out? Some really bad actor in a white lab coat checking up on Shawn Michaels. Well, what the hell was that? So a couple of ridiculous nonsense things in this match. All that said, all that said, this was about as good of a street fight, as good of a hardcore match that you're ever going to see. And the crowd was just so hot for it. The crowd was so excited to see Shawn Michaels back. Um, and, and here is my favorite part concerning crowd reaction and then the ending. And that's really what's connected. When Shawn Michaels is teasing the super kick, he's getting the, uh, the band ready, as they say. And Triple H ducks and turns it into what appears to be a pedigree. The groan in the crowd <laughs> is incredible. I mean, it's like you leading the giant. You got to be effing kidding me that Triple H is going to pedigree Shawn Michaels and win this match. But Shawn turns it into a, what do you call that when he? He ends up pringing up his legs and then flipping them over and getting the pin that way. Sunset flip. Uh, is that a sunset flip? Yeah, I guess you could say it was. But but let me ask you this. If this is a hardcore match. This is between two blood rivals who beat the crap out of each other for 30 minutes. And they're, they're just, they just want to murder each other. And then he wins with a roll-up? Like, that's weird. Come on. Come I'm, on. I think that was great. But this is what did you want? What did you want? Shawn Michaels to kill him in the middle of the ring? Like, but, I don't know. But this, this, is, this, want it. this is a blood feud. This is a a hardcore match. How do you end a hardcore match with a uh, small package? Well, I think sometimes it's the moment and it was perfect in the moment. I think it was perfect that, you know, Sean is about to do the super kick. We're all excited. H almost turns into a pedigree. We're all groaning into a bang. One, two, three. And I think the other reason why it worked is that we didn't know this at the time. I remember being there wondering, is this a one-off? Did Sean just want to come back, have one match, and say, okay, I got to end it on my own terms? I wasn't sure. We mm-hmm. didn't know that Sean Michaels was about to put together this incredible run. None of us knew that. 
obviously they had an idea. I think I, I can't be positive about this, that there was going to be a continuation to this feud or otherwise they wouldn't have had triple H assault him after the match ended. And to your point, if you had Sean destroy him to get the victory, how does then Triple H realistically get back up to get the revenge on Shawn Michaels and put him out of action for a few months? So I think going with what the storyline turned out to be, and they had a few more matches after this. They obviously had the Elimination Chamber where Shawn came back. Then they had the three stages of hell, and then Shawn went on and you know had a great run. I think it made sense for the conclusion to be the way it did. Do you now agree with it now that I've sold you? You sell me with that, but, uh, but again, in the moment, how do you end a hardcore match with a roll-up? I get it. You needed to get to the post-match stuff, but it's like, how do you end a blood feud with, you know, the finger poker doom? You know, it's like, what are we doing here? Finger, but how could you compare the two? <laughs> I, th- I, I think it's a soft way to win a, a, a blood feud match. Now, can I, I don't know if this intrigues you at all, but this really, really intrigues me. So Triple H and Shawn Michaels set up this feud with Triple H pedigrees him in the ring because he's turning on him. Triple H is about to turn heel. But then somebody runs over Shawn Michaels and Triple H is concerned. Meanwhile, it turns out to be Triple H. We, we have now found out Triple H has attempted murder numerous times in his <laughs> WWE career. He ran over Austin, even though we thought it was Rikishi. Now he's running over Shawn Michaels. So it was kind of a weird buildup for this match. But Shawn Michaels joined the NWO. And right before Kevin Nash got hurt, which caused the end of the NWO, and Vince came out and said, the NWO is dead. The angle at the time, if you remember, it was brief. The NWO wanted Triple H to join. And that was going to be the angle going into, I think it was the Vengeance pay-per-view, if I'm not mistaken. Obviously, the NWO thing falls apart. Kevin Nash gets hurt. NWO is disbanded. And so they turn Triple H's decision into will he join Raw or SmackDown? So here's my question. What was the original plan? Was the original plan Sean being the heel? Because he's the one in the NWO with Kevin Nash and the big show at the time, I think. I think the big show was still in it. So what was the plan? What, what was the initial plan to give you Shawn Michaels Triple H? Because I assume, Dennis, that in that moment that Shawn is in the NWO but is still not wrestling, and they're about to pressure Triple H into deciding, is he going to join the NWO or not? What was the plan to get us to SummerSlam? Well, when did H turn heel? Because he he wins the Weeks later. So he wins the belt at WrestleMania uh, 18. And then he drops right. it the next pay-per-view to Hogan. Uh, right. So he's a face that whole time leaning up to uh, HBK coming back? Yes. He's a he's a face fighting The Undertaker for a title. I think it was that King of the Ring. Now we're in June. When, when did they, quote-unquote, when did they fake reunite DX? Because they come back out with the DX t-shirts, the DX music, and then H pedigrees okay. them. When did that happen? So, so here's what happened. Shawn Michaels is in the NWO. I'm not repeating what I just said, but, but like you'll see the connection. Okay. Shawn's in the NWO, and they're about to say to Triple H, you better join the NWO. We want your decision. Nash gets hurt. Vince kills the NWO. And I think within a week or two, they had to pivot. And the pivot was, is Triple H going to Raw SmackDown? Triple H decides Raw, I think at Vengeance, and it's about him and Shawn being friends and getting to be together, right? So that's where it happens. Now we're in July. So we're in the month of July. 
Sean is just around, even though he's not a wrestler. Triple H is still a face. They literally turn him face right as, you know, I'd say four weeks out of SummerSlam. Okay. So my point is, what was the plan? Was the plan Triple H joins the NWO, but he turns out to really be the leader and they turn on Sean? Maybe that's what they do. And so Triple H is now the leader of the NWO fighting Shawn Michaels. Or maybe Triple H says, I'm not joining the NWO. And Shawn is the heel facing Triple H. Mm. I don't know. I'm just saying, if you remember back and you can go back on the network and watch some of these draws, that was the setup. The setup was Shawn's in the NWO. Is Triple H going to join him? So I am fascinated to know what the hell their thinking was. So the NWO comes back and it's, um, it's Nash and X-Pac, and they recruit HBK, and then Big Show and Booker T come in, and then they kick out Booker T almost immediately. And I think they do the same with Big Show. Am I remembering, remembering that correctly? I, I I don't remember the Big Show part. Like I, They may have turned on him. They definitely turned on Booker T, and Hall was already fired. So it was Kevin Nash, X-Pac, Shawn Michaels, and maybe the Big Show, and they're now about to try to get Triple H to join. Look, the whole thing's a mess. Obviously, the NWO at this point is a joke. I mean, you're going to have Shawn Michaels and Triple H in a group and say it's the NWO. I mean, it's really D-Generation X when you think about it. So I, I guess it worked out well that they killed off the NWO, and this became more of an, I, uh, you know, I, I guess just Triple H versus Shawn Michaels. They used to be friends, you know, that kind of storyline. But they were clearly going for something else. That's what I, that's the way it looked. Or maybe maybe it wasn't going to be Triple H and Shawn Michaels. Maybe it was Kevin Nash against Shawn Michaels. Maybe it was I don't know. And it's I, a, I don't know what the hell it was going to be. And there are a lot lots of different ways they could have gone with it. Let me ask you this because that brings up another question for me. As we record this in 2020, do, is there any life left in the NWO? A couple years ago, when they did the Raw 25 and they're at Manhattan Center and they they give the uh, the two suite to Finn Balor and the you know the the boys the whole thing. Can can you see any iteration of the NWO with like a Finn Balor, with an AJ Styles, with somebody in the company to be like, you know what, we're going to be cool heels and do the whole thing? Can is no. there any life left in it? No, okay. No, 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 no. They look. If you have a cool heel group, you just have to call it something else. I think the days of the NWO have passed. It, it was really cool in its day. They tried to reform it a billion different times. They tried to reform it in WCW a million different times. We obviously saw what they did in the WWF, and it could have worked in the WWF. I, to me, and I think you'd appreciate this, bro, the biggest mistake they made with the NWO, and, and here's my rebooking of it, and you tell me your thoughts. You ready? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Right. Are you Hulk Hogan ready? Rock is the match. It's not the main event. They see the crowds going for Hogan, which shouldn't have been a surprise. All right. Hall and Nash turn on Hulk Hogan at the end of that match. Triple H Jericho is happening. And what they pull off at the main event of WrestleMania 18 is the double turn. Triple H is the face. Chris Jericho is the heel. The NWO basically screws Chris Jericho and helps Triple H. And somehow... They do kind of like a double turn where Jericho becomes, you know, the sympathetic face as Triple H, a natural heel, as we all know, is getting help from his old buddies, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. And so Triple H wins the championship. He is now a heel. Chris Jericho is a face. Hulk Hogan is a face. And now if you want to run a 
Triple H Hulk Hogan feud. It's the new leader of the NWO versus the old leader of the NWO. And so I think that would have given the NWO a little bit of juice coming out of Mania because once they lost Hogan and really didn't have a good way to replace him, the faction was dead. They needed to give it new juice. And I think Triple H at WrestleMania would have given the juice. What do you think of that rebook? That's pretty damn good rebook, and I think that's absolutely incredible. I, I just think that um, I, I don't think they cared enough about Jericho in the moment to do anything else other than have him be squashing that. Other than that, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. It would have been really dope, especially considering that you put the undisputed belt on Hunter at you know at the main event of WrestleMania, and he drops it a month later. That's going to be the quickest turnaround from winning the belt at WrestleMania to dropping it, right? Yeah, and it's all because they saw the the, the love Hulk Hogan was getting. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I want to mention Hulk Hogan. Here we are at SummerSlam 02. Hogan is over as anybody's been over, takes the title from Triple H, loses to The Undertaker, has a feud with Kurt Angle. He is not at SummerSlam 2002. Stone Cold Steve Austin walks out of the company a few months earlier. He's not at SummerSlam 02. Were they originally taking this pay-per-view, which we both love, would it have included Hulk Hogan versus Steve Austin? That may have been another match on the card if things didn't kind of go awry with both Austin and Hulk Hogan. It's crazy to think about. Like the amount of talent after the invasion ended in the, at the end of uh, 01, the amount of talent that came in, you know, beginning of 02 to the beginning of 03, there's, there's so many different ways they can go, especially when you consider, you know, we lose The Rock full time basically after this pay per view. We lose Austin full time at, at WrestleMania 03. It, it, but this, this, this little period here, there's a lot of passing ships in the dark. Let's get to the main event. Why don't we? Why don't we get to the match everyone remembers from SummerSlam 2002? He is now the WWE Undisputed Champion. He just came back from Hollywood, won the title at the July pay-per-view. He is the Rock, and he's taking on the next big thing, Brock Lesnar. What was so cool about this match is everybody knew the outcome. Everybody knew the outcome. We all knew <laughs> that The Rock came back to win the title to put over Brock Lesnar. Simply put, the Brock Lesnar train is rolling. He's going to win the championship at SummerSlam. It, taking it from The Undertaker, taking it from Triple H, taking it from any other guy doesn't have the effect of taking it from The Rock. And so how do you take a match where everybody knows the outcome and how do you make it awesome? And there's two ways. Number one, the crowd. The crowd turning on the rock right from the get-go was tremendous. Now, I've gotten tweets, Dennis, from people taking credit for the crowd turning on the rock. I had one guy tweet <laughs> me, it was me. I started booing the rock right away, and I got the entire Coliseum to turn. Listen, I always love the rock. I was booing the rock at SummerSlam <laughs> 2002. Because I saw him for what he was. And that was a guy that was simply coming back to then leave again and go to Hollywood. To me, he was a sellout. I know all these years later I was being irrational, but, you know, I was young at the time. I was a a teenager at the time. I was 19 years old. What the hell do you want from me? (laughs) I was booing the rock. So the crowd, I thought, Dennis, made this a big match feel. And then I thought the ending was tremendous. I think that the he's about to F5 the rock. Wait, the rock gets out. Now rock's about to... Rock bottom Brock, or even before that, Rock's about to do the people's elbow, and Brock jumps up, and then the the kind of the twisting of the arm where he turns the Rock bottom into the F five, and then a clean victory. I just thought it was great. 
Uh, I thought it was a really good, good match, really fun match, and I thought the crowd took it to another level. From the very, very beginning, you get the Rocky Sucks chance, you get the Let's Go Lesnar, and you like, and like you said, there were a lot of spots in this match that showed that Lesnar was just an athletic stud. The the double kip up uh, early on in the match, uh, I I remember for sure. Uh, it's one of those things that going back and watching this, Lesnar debuted. In the spring of '02, less than six months before, less like basically four months before this, and rewatching this, I'm like, is was the moment going to be too big for him? Because I'm like, he knows he's going to win the WWE Championship when he's on the way down the ramp. And do I see any nervousness? Do I see anything crazy about this? And he just he was a big, huge gigantic monster going down that ramp the crowd wanted change the crowd wanted something new they were pissed that the rock was going off to hollywood and it, it, it made a difference in the match and matt and like i wish I, I'm, I'm sure it is on youtube somewhere at, or and you were there so you can you can tell us after the match the rock was you could tell even during the match you could tell the rock was pissed off he's like because he's one of the biggest stars in the world he debuted Less than six months, uh, less than six years uh, prior. So his ascent and his ascent from s- debuting at 96 Survivor Series to SummerSlam 02 is less than six years, which is crazy to think about. The biggest star in the world at this point, and the crowd wants nothing to do with him. Uh, not quite die, Rocky, die, but so you can see him being why, so mad. Here's why I disagree. Here's why I do not think The Rock was mad. He acted like a heel during the match. He's beating the crap out of Paul Heyman. He was the one clearing out the Spanish announce table (laughs) so that he could try to assault Brock Lesnar. He was wrestling the match as if he was a heel. So I don't know if it was an in-the-moment thing where he said, you know what, these bastards are going to turn on me, they're going to boo me, well, then I'm going to act that way. But I thought The Rock wrestled the match a little bit as a heel. Well, Lesnar doesn't turn face until, what, uh, show and, he- and Heyman turn on him in, like, November, yeah, December? Yeah, it was a few months for Brock. So you're right. They didn't turn Brock after this. Brock fought Undertaker. Undertaker's clearly the face. But I, that's why I, I kind of lean towards the Rock playing the moment, like seeing, okay, crowd's going to hate me? Well, I'm going to play up to it. I'm going to become a dick, and I'm going to wrestle like a heel because if you – and maybe you have to rewatch the match again, which isn't that bad because it was a fun match. It was a fun match, yeah. He wrestled the match as a heel, I'm telling you. I, but Liz, I'm, I'm with you. I agree. You know, when you say it in those terms, I, I completely agree with that for sure. Now, here's what happened at the end of the show. And I have always been searching for this on YouTube, thinking that maybe somebody has video of this. But I remember this very, very vividly. At the time, I wasn't sure if this was on the pay-per-view or not. Obviously, it was not on the pay-per-view. And that was after Brock wins, he leaves the ring. The Rock is in the ring by himself. And the crowd is just booing the crap out of The Rock. I mean, it is loud how much we are. And I'm joining in. We're just booing The Rock. And The Rock grabs a microphone. And The Rock says, finally. And the boos get louder. And The Rock just stops. And he tries it again. Finally. And again, the the boos are just now drowning him out. And finally, The Rock says, finally. It doesn't matter where the rock came back to and just throws the mic away. (laughs) So he completed the heel turn, at least off camera with that. It was very, very well done. And I think at that point, we all started cheering him because we remembered how cool the rock was. 
Uh, listen, I think that that's what we said about John Cena, right? The moment he turned heel, everyone would start cheering him. So it's one of those moments that, like, you know, we just want what we want, and when we don't get what we want, sometimes we get a little angsty about it. So crowds are fickle. I'm always a big believer that uh, people don't know what they want. So you just got to give them the best you got. And I think that's one of those moments where, uh, you know, it's interesting to see because Rock doesn't come back until – what leading up to WrestleMania 19 and with the the Austin angle, so we don't see Rock again for six months. And when he does, uh, he's a heel. So you know it's Rock concert Rock, which maybe we do and go back and watch some of those because that's might be one of my favorite wrestlers of all time was Rock concert Rock. Ah, uh, he was tremendous. Yeah, he came back and fought Hulk Hogan at No Way Out, the big rematch from WrestleMania. But that was the next time we would see him. So was this pay per view? And I know this is asking a lot, but I'm going to ask it. Was this the greatest pay-per-view in the history of the WWE? No, I, I think that's a little bit strong. I, I can't come up with a better contender right now. I think uh, X7 comes to mind uh, for sure. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, probably, I can't argue top five. I can't come up with anything better in the moment. Um, but I, top five, I think, is fair. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, that's a sign of how good it is if your response is... I can't come up with really anything in the moment. That just shows you that this was a tremendous, tremendous event. This was fun. It was fun to rewatch. It was fun to talk about. This was your choice. Your choice was the first pay-per-view we would rewatch and then kind of react to with SummerSlam 02. My choice, and this will be the next Evan Roberts podcast uh, rewatch edition, if that's what we're going to call it, will be Starcade 1998, which in an odd way, does have some similarities to SummerSlam 2002. And you may be saying to yourself, what? What are the similarities? Well, here's the similarity. Brock Lesnar continued his undefeated streak by winning his world championship at SummerSlam. We are going to talk about an an event in which it ended maybe the most infamous winning streak in the history of pro wrestling, and that was Bill Goldberg's streak of 173-0. It ended famously at Starcade 1998. So obviously that is going to be the main focus, and that'll be the next edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast. Dennis, great job as always. I look forward to discussing Starcade with you.